This episode, I'm going to be talking to Rune Rasmussen from Denmark on his work with the Nordic Animism calendar that he's been working on. Uh, he did one last year that I, I was involved in that project as well, and it was it was absolutely lovely to see uh, how it was presented. And it's coming out again this year, and this time he's decided to split it up into a book as well as the calendar, so the information doesn't have well, you know, can be can be uh, kept separate and can be observed in 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 a, in a different way. Uh, this is the calendar and the book is going to be available on the Northern Fire website, um, probably by the time that this comes out. And it's certainly worth a look. It's beautiful work. He's done a hell of a lot of research for it. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the, the duration of this podcast. We ended up um, uh, getting quite into it, which, uh, you know, for me was bloody lovely and really interesting to, to talk about. So we've decided that we're going to split this up into two parts to make it a little bit more manageable. Uh, hopefully you're going to find it as interesting as I did. Um, so without further ado, there we go. Runa, thank you so much for joining us for this. How are you keeping? Well, I'm just fine. Thank you for thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. It's, I've got to say, it's um, it's been it's been quite a while since I last saw you in Copenhagen. I yeah. think uh, you know that back in the days when we used to be able to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was in, in the opening of the Gnungagab or something like that. Ufa's uh, Ufa's yeah. tattoo study in uh, in Copenhagen. Uh. Indeed. Well, a lot's happened since then, um, you know, uh, so we're going to stay away from current events and all that, but like, you know, obviously since then I participated in, in some artwork for the, for the first, uh, Nordic animism calendar that you did. Yes. And then, uh, and then I've been helping you more with the second that we're going to, that we're going to talk about in a minute, but, um, would you mind, uh, telling us about your, you know, uh, about yourself just in general and your, your background before we get into it all? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, my name is uh, Rune uh, Jan Rasmussen. I'm a historian of religion, and uh, I've, I've been working. Uh, my main the main focus uh, in my PhD has been on Afro Atlantic religion. Actually, as I studied at an Afro Brazilian religion, but through my studies, I've also on the side also been studying uh, Nordic religion, which was like an old interest of mine. And and during my PhD, my sort of interest started going back towards that, and and I've been been working on developing uh, new perspectives on how to uh, look at Nordic history of religions um, that yeah, perhaps we can come back to on, under the label Nordic animism. And yeah, I, I've, my background is also that I've done quite a lot of different things in my life. I've worked and lived in different countries in Africa and, and uh, also the Americas and, and so on. So, um, and, uh, and, my my, many of the scholars that you will uh, talk to will have different profile. I heard you had Neil Price on. I think he's an uh, archaeologist. Uh, I'm more of an anthropologist. So um, yeah, <laughs> that's that's my. Background. Well, it's lovely to mix it up a bit, like having having you on here as well. Then yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, you you know, uh, my main involvement with you up until now has been in the the Nordic Animism calendar, and. Yeah. Uh, and our, our mutual friend Ave 
uh, you know, did some some fantastic work for that as well. Yeah, um, totally. But like, would would you uh, would you uh, you know elaborate a bit on the the research that you did for for putting this together? Yeah, the calendar. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, well, I started being interested in specific parts, actually, of Nordic Reckoning. Specifically, I started being being interested in actually runic calendar, the fact that people have used runes as a way of, of uh, keeping track of time. And that was sort of where my interest started. And then I sort of flowed into, into other directions because I realized, okay, then I have to understand lunar reckoning and I have to understand, you know, different uh, holidays and so on. And... Um, so, so, so it sort of float, uh, floated out from there, and uh, I, I was, I, I also then became aware that there's such a lot that there's a lot of material. First, there's a lot of material that a lot of people aren't aware. Uh, there's also a lot of material which is, like from a basic like perspective of being interested in traditional religions and stuff like that is just super interesting uh but people aren't so aware of it because it doesn't belong to uh the very old period before the christian before christianity was implemented in 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 the north the viking age and it, uh, I, people have a little bit of a tendency to be like oh, okay so if it ain't viking then it isn't really all that cool now is it so we just Forget about that. <laughs> and when you start looking at that material, then you find like the craziest thing. You know, it seems like when you look back in time that people, you know, uh, didn't do much uh, else than basically having uh, ritual sex on Bronze Age rock carvings and brewing sacred beer in complex rituals and like uh, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So I thought when, when I read some of these uh kind of a little bit old school scholars writing about all that. I was like, damn, the hippies of the world, they just need to know this stuff, man. <laughs> so, and, and, and then I, then I, then I started putting together this thing, uh, which was also actually partly inspired or the way I did it was also partly inspired by my, um, my work with the, uh, the, uh, uh, these, uh, Afro-Caribbean religions because these peoples, the the enslaved Africans that were brought to to the New World, um, uh, they they had ways of reinventing their traditional religiosities, where they, for instance, identifies their Loa or their Orisha, their different deities, with saints, uh, and that's a way of being able to continue to worship them. And I felt that when I came from the research in that stuff, that when I looked at the, the the traditional calendar of Scandinavians, there was a lot of examples where saints seem to have been used in the same way, almost as a, you know, in popular terms, you could say a mask for uh, for perhaps a, a heathen deity or something like that. There's a, a number of examples of this, and and so I, I wanted to sort of bring this. Yeah, weirdly transatlantic Afro <laughs> Afro descended perspective into this the uh, the attempt to make this uh, all this traditional calendar stuff available for contemporary people. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. There's examples of that, like in in Wales as well. You know uh, where I am and uh, where I grew up. Every town that has Hian in front of the name, like I like I live in Hiandidno, and that came from uh, Hian Tidno. Um, Hian is the name of the area of the parish, and then Tidno is the name of the saint. Now, okay. and uh, Tidno, or Tidno was um, he was said to be 
uh, one of a one son of of a of a of a great nobleman that had lots of sons, and they they all went off from like the old north, I believe, which would have been around Scotland, and they all went off and did things. And uh, when he came here, he arrived with a whetstone that would sharpen the sword of a hero and blunt the sword of a coward, and whether that's christian or not there's there's many others that that are clearly a lot older than christianity and these also got incorporated so you know that idea of of comparing cultures uh and how they integrate into christianity you know it it you know it does it clearly spans across the board yeah no i i think that's super fascinating i'm i Sadly, I know far too little about the amazing history and folklore of the uh, west side of the North uh, North Sea region. I mean, all the stuff from England and uh, yeah, like Wales, I have little clue about it. I I remember talking to people who who said that there were similar trends in Ireland, in particular this thing about identifying saints with. And of course, there's a very uh, well known example of Saint Bridget, which basically exactly. got got the name of uh, of an uh, Irish goddess. Um, and yeah, but I also think that what you say there, uh, I think that when we think about stuff like this today, I I would sort of, well, I, I'm, I'm trying when I'm working with this kind of stuff to not think so much, so is it Christian or isn't it Christian? Exactly. Uh, because yeah. because it, it, uh, it tends to sort of, boxing these things in ways that are not necessarily the ways that people used to actually think about these things like uh one of the best examples of this these saint making of nordic deities in scandinavia is is the saint called saint eric of sweden right which became the the uh patron saint of the swedish kings after the the god freyr had been the patron deity of the Swedish Inglinger kings, right? So Saint Eric had got similar symbolisms like a, a blooming branch and a sword and stuff like that. Um, and they would carry him over the fields in the spring. There's a case where, <laughs> where a Swedish peasant sometime in the Middle Ages, I don't know, the 14th century or something, uh, uh, gave a, like a religious vow, a religious oath, oath to Saint Eric to get cured from some some illness that he had. And then when he got cured, he went up to Uppsala and then he sacrificed a horse to Saint yeah. Eric. <laughs> and this is like, it, it, it's, it, this just shows that, I mean, from from our perspective, it's not a particularly Christian thing to do to go up to Uppsala and sacrifice a horse. <laughs> but but from his perspective, you know, the the, the whole the whole thing of being Christian or being something else is is probably uh, it, it was something different for, uh, it was for that blurred. person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um... no, I couldn't agree more. I think that that's um, I think that that's something that is it's almost very difficult to to uh, to comprehend especially if if you're a newcomer to uh, to all of this stuff as well is the idea that it wasn't you know there were there were some there were some points where it would have been very clean cut and then there was a lot of gray area and yeah like yeah. say the 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 rune uh, the rune sticks from from bergen where like there's the spells in one point there they're clearly referencing in odin and odin and then in the next part there the reference in you know the angels of of heaven and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You find these mixes in a lot of of, of all those runic spells. You also find it in the 
uh, in the spells that follow the uh, Icelandic Galdastaf material, then you also find these spells that start mentioning a lot of demons from Judeo-Christian tradition, like Asasel and blah, 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 and Belzebub, and then Odin and Hother and Frigg and Baldr plus suddenly jumps up in there as well, and they're kind of, they're kind of just lumping a lot of powerful stuff together. And, um, and yeah, I think there's also... Um, is there a Christian uh, runic uh, stick from Denmark that also... Nah, I forgot about that. I heard also about like a, a guy in Germany that he denounced the Nordic gods and, uh, and you know became a Christian. And he did this by going up to, apparently, some local uh, wooden statues of, uh, of the Nordic gods and denounced them and then cast a spear at Odin which, again, is a slightly confusing way about going about it, if this is true. I, I've heard this secondhand. I've heard everything secondhand, in fact. But, <laughs> um, so um, back onto the point then about the, the incorporation of the, the more uh, traditional Scandinavian uh, festivals of the year and so on getting incorporated into the Christian calendar. Would you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, um there's a there's a Swedish scholar called Andreas Norberg who wrote an amazingly nice piece of scholarship on that stuff, and unfortunately he wrote in Swedish. Uh, <laughs> but there's there's a nice uh, there's a nice uh, summary in English uh, in the end of it, and I'm I'm sort of leaning on him. I think his his work is probably uh, some of the best, if not. You know, undoubtedly the best that's uh, there today, and he he um, so according to this guy, there are quarter celebrations. So there are, there are four celebrations around the year, right? This is not new to anyone, probably because people usually think about the you know the solstices and the equinoxes as celebrations. However, it's slightly different because what what uh, what is actually if we take, for instance, the winter celebration that we call Christmas today, um, it's actually pushed from the solstice, and it, it's pushed fur away from the solstice, so it's later in in the uh, in the um, year. And he there's long argumentations and like comparing different sources that that he reaches this conclusion. However, it, it seems. Re really, uh, it seems quite certain to say that there is there was a Yule celebration on the first full moon after the first new moon after the winter solstice. So when the winter solstice is there on the 21st, 22nd of December, then you wait and then the first new moon comes. And then when that moon hits its fullness, that is the, the old Yule. So that is sometime in the middle of January-ish. Right, and there are similar ways of of timing the other uh, important times. There is the the uh, this thing uh, celebration, which uh, the famous Uppsala celebrations, uh, a couple of months later, also timed by a moon. The summer uh, celebrations, midsummer celebrations, are difficult to to time uh, precisely by the sources. I personally believe that it it it, it was a similar timing. Um, and then there's the uh, Vetonetter, which is uh, a, uh, a full moon around the, uh, the uh, autumn equinox. So it, these quarter celebrations, they're located a bit after 
the solar celebration. So the winter celebration is not the sol- uh, the winter solstice. It's a bit later. The uh, the summer celebration probably not the uh, summer solstice, but a bit later. And uh, the same with uh, the spring and uh, or similar things with the spring and and uh, autumn celebrations, right? So these four celebration periods, they have then sort of fed into time because then as as time went goes by then you know the, a new religion comes it takes over everything it defines everything it defines time as a really important thing so then new logics and new mythologies also come a really good example of this is the spring celebration in uh the at the 25th of march we have today a Christian holiday called Lady Day. Now that is nine months before what? Christmas Eve. So that's the evening that God had sex with the Virgin Mary for her to get pregnant with Jesus so he could get born get uh, born on Christmas Eve. Right, that's the logic of the Christian, the Christian yeah. mythology. That's an, and, and then what happens is that, that people sort of... Now that celebration happens to fall around the time of year when they used to have the big disting goddess celebrations in Uppsala. So 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 there's you see for some peasant living in the countryside in Sweden is it god having sex with the queen the virgin mary or is it you know a big spring goddess being celebrated or is it you know is it in england Eustre or whatever these things would have flown together and merged so down through time you have these other uh holidays emerging sort of around that time right uh so what you really have is that you have these periods where there's a lot of different holidays and yule christmas time is just by far the most intense like uh, there's a gazillion holidays, and I think it has probably always been like that. The scholars of of uh, uh, Norse religions and Andreas Norberg that I mentioned before, they can see that the uh, this particular full moon in January was probably where the heathen Yule celebration culminated. But the word Yule or Yulis in I, th- I think it's Yulis in some Proto-Germanic language is actually um the linguists can see that this this word yule is actually derived from a plural it's yules it's not one yule they're more it's yules so i think that you know if you look at your google calendar here in december and you see what it looks like i think it looked similar for for ancient germanics had they had google calendars and that is a lot of (laughs) stuff a lot of stuff happening right you need to meet with your old role-playing buddies and you need to uh, go to that part of the family and the other and uh, blah, 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 blah. So you have a tight schedule in Yule. Um, and so so uh, so all these different holidays that emerged down through time are, in a sense, they're sort of located in that time of year. And they are oftentimes, they're playing with the same motives. They're taking the same motives that probably was there all the time and then they're sort of mixing them in new ways for instance in yule there's the idea that somebody's bringing fire somebody's coming with light 
And that idea is just being, it's, you know, still today, people are sort of get, coming up with new ideas about how that could be. So all that, you know, candle lighting and all that stuff that people are doing in, around Yule, that I think comes from really old ideas of, uh, of uh, bringing light. So when you look at stuff like a Kampuslauf in, in, uh, in southern Germany, where you have these mon you know, monsters in uh, what's it called, pelts or uh, carrying torches, then that is one version. And then in other places, people put little candles between little cute little pixies or gnomes and stuff like that. And, 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 and these are different versions of, of doing something similar. Of course, some stuff is cooler than other. Campos is a little bit cooler than putting, putting you know, yeah, just ten little candles. <laughs> yeah, but uh, and um, but uh, yeah, that makes have sense. Have you heard of uh, Have you heard of the the Welsh one, Mary Lloyd? Yeah, I have. Yeah, I have. I I, uh, I haven't haven't looked at it, but I've, I've just like seen that and thought, man, that is some shit. <laughs> yeah. So. For instance, I have to admit that it's not something that gets practiced around my area in North Wales. It's, from what I know, it's more of mid Wales and more over onto the coast a little bit. But the idea of it is that you take a horse skull and you decorate it and you have someone holding it and uh, the person holding it has a white sheet over it. And you lead this creature around and then you go to people's doors and you sing. And you almost have like a... Um, it's like a sing-off. There's there's a traditional tune for it, but then you have to improvise it, and you're you're basically improvising to ask someone to let you in and to come eat and drink your stuff. And if your song isn't good enough, they turn you away. Okay. Yeah. 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 None of that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. But then, That's... but it's also the same idea as well. Of uh, well, actually, no one knows how old that idea is, but. But then, say, down in Cornwall, when it comes to spring, you've got the idea of the horse that has become a horse again, and it has a flesh. So it could be the idea of it coming back to life as well. Yeah. It's no, I think I, uh, uh, there's similar motives in the, in the Nordic area. Uh, I don't remember if it is Orkney, where they have a similar thing of... of um, or maybe it's Shetland or, or something. There's some some of those islands there where they have this thing about decorating a skull, a horse's skull. And I think in Denmark, actually, there used to be a Yule horse, a Christmas horse of sorts. And if you look at the symbolisms that surround the whole of the dark period, from around now, from a, around like winter nights, uh, Halloween-y sort of time, and down down towards around St. Bridget or Candlemas uh, time in early February. In that period of time, there are horse motifs sort of appearing uh, and like playing a little bit of a role. And I, I think that makes very much sense that that thing about the dead horse in, in, uh, in Yule and then it becomes alive uh, later. There's even a ritual in from Jutland where people would actually sacrifice a hell, what they call a hell horse, by um, by leaving it, uh, just leaving it on frozen fields. So they would take an old horse that was going to die anyway, and then they would leave it to starve to death, uh, 
around uh, around the All Souls All Hallows time, and they call this horse a hell horse. Uh, and there are these ideas in Denmark about hell horses that are three legged and they live under um, uh, cemeteries and stuff like that. So there's this kind of horse death dead horse associations uh, going on around that. Um, That's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the one with the idea of the, the horse in Wales, um, no one knows how old the, that idea is. And, and of course, no idea. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to correlate it with saying it's, it has anything to do with it. It's just, you know, it's just one of those things that's interesting. Yeah. So um, you mentioned before about... Uh, the runic calendars and just for for people that don't know about that there there are the 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 sticks with those would you would you tell us about them yeah that is awesome man i mean when when i started looking at that i, I was thinking how come the hippies haven't gotten into this before i mean it's it's like this is like a hippie wet dream if I was a hippie and I wanted to imagine something cool, but and I'm smoking a bit of cannabis. Perhaps I would come up with that. <laughs> nah, anyway, uh, I don't know. Perhaps I'll delete the last thing <laughs> or leave it. I don't know. Um, the uh, now the runic calendar is. Uh, oh, how, where should I start this? Right, pre-Christian reckoning in Scandinavia was lunisolar. It means that it calibrates the cycles of the moon with the cycles of the sun. So when, for instance, as I said before, there the um, uh, first moon month, meaning the first new moon after the winter solstice, that that marks when the, when the Yule celebration is, that is a calibration between the Solar, solar uh, year, sun, and the lunar year. So they had a system to make sure that these things sort of stayed in the right place. Right. So, when Christianity came, Christianity actually, you could say Christianity shifted a little bit towards the solar, solar reckoning. What we have today is solar reckoning. Our months are, don't follow the moon, right? So, the first of a month is not always on a new moon, uh, and uh, uh, so so our months are fixed in relation to the solar year, which is why, for instance, the solstices always fall on almost the same uh, uh, month dates. Right? Uh, just stop me if this becomes too funky. Not at all. Right? No, no. But Christianity has its own little components of lunisolar reckoning. And that is the dating of Easter. And I, I'm, I'm not so good with numbers, so I forgot the details about this. But the, the Pesach, the, the Jewish Easter, was actually dated in, in a way that sounds very Nordic heathen. It's like uh, the first Sunday after the first f full moon or new moon after the... the uh, uh, spring equinox it's something like that it, it's a rule like that one of those calendar rules are difficult to remember um, and that meant that when Christianity was implemented there was still this sort of need to sort of be able to sp 
to relate the solar and the lunar year, right? So uh, we we kind of know how people did it in, in the pre-Christian times, and, and there was this idea of the solar year, and there was the, the lunar year, and then through the ages, different ways of counting became implemented. One important one was the one to predict the new moon year after year. That's called the Metonic cycle. That was invented in the Middle Ages and something like that. And when it came to Northern Europe, now, Scandinavians might already have known it, but we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. But certainly, when the Metonic cycle came to uh, Scandinavia, people were like, yes, that works for us because we want understand the exactly the relation between the, the cycle of the sun and the cycle of the moon. So the runic calendar expresses in fact this metonic cycle. Uh, so a runic calendar has two rows. One which is just expresses the weeks of a whole year and that is a solar year. One which expresses the month dates and that no, no the moon dates and that is means that in a given year you can look at your runic calendar and you can see that there's one rune and that rune marks when the uh, new moon falls for instance for this year that we're in now 2020 it's the rune hail so the hate when you see the hail rune on your runic calendar you know that that's new moon and and then uh, if you count moons by new moon, then you know when to begin a new moon, a um, new month, right? Uh, so, so this system sort of came to Scandinavia in the Middle Ages, but was very, very compatible with uh, pre-existing uh, kind of ideas of how uh, how to reckon time. And then what further happened was that it was associated with the runes, and. Uh, some of this stuff was recorded in the 17th century by some like early Swedish scholars, and uh, and they one of the recordings at, uh, of of this um, uh, some of this stuff actually had little um, little uh, omens about the year attached to every single rune, right? So. Uh, so and, and this is typically agrarian omens. It's like a windy year, a good harvest year, a troublesome in this or that respect year, uh, a year with a troublesome childbirth. It's clearly omens that uh, reflect uh, agrarian uh, sustenance life, right? So uh, the runic calendar sort of emerged as a a way as a, in this kind of syncretic process where there were pre-existing ideas in Scandinavia that were sort of reflecting on and incorporating older heathen ideas of the uh, of how to reckon time uh, and this this idea that these runes actually kind of foretell something about the year which i think is quite spectacular because most people, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of, a lot of people who like runes also like the idea of divination with runes. I like this myself as well, you know, <laughs> but, but it's very difficult to find any, any, um, any uh, strong examples of it, of it. But this is actually an example of it. 
This is a this is a divination system, a traditional runic divination system, uh, in uh, in basically in in with with attachment to the calendar. Um, so yeah. So that's the runic calendar, and this means that basically every single day around the year has a what you might call a runic signature, the two runes that marks every single day. Uh, one that marks the 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 weekday and thereby the day in relation to the solar year, and one that marks the uh, the day in relation to the uh, the cycle of the moon. For instance, today is the twentieth of October. That then the the rune that marks the the weekday today is the K rune Kaun, and there's an, actually an empty space on the um, on the moon rune. So yesterday it was the Ars rune, and tomorrow it, uh, it will be the Tyr rune that that marks the lunar um, the lunar phase. Does this sound? That's very Mars, weird and yeah. complicated, <laughs> or uh, am I making oh, no, sense I'm when I'm explaining it, yeah, yeah. this? <laughs> okay. I'm getting it. I, cool. I've cool. seen the the rune sticks, and yeah. I've kind of just looked at them and thought, you know, don't know how they work. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. it's interesting to hear. Yeah, and I I I, th- I think that's what everybody had been doing. They thought, oh, that looks cool, but yeah, I'll, I'll I'll think about that some other time. <laughs> and and I was. <laughs> It, it took me. It took me a while to figure out how that stuff works. But but there there are people who uh, basically wrote about it, and um, and and yeah, figured it out. Uh, so, yeah. so you say about these getting used in pre-Christian Scandinavia. Do you know what the oldest examples of these are? Uh, we don't have any any sticks from pre-Christian. We have some that look very old, uh, and there are from uh, the 1200s. I think the earliest, uh, the earliest sticks uh, are from the 1200s. So, uh, and these are, so we, we 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 they probably emerged with the the uh, implementation of Christianity, but they seem to reflect earlier ideas of time. And yeah. they, they might have been there before, but but uh, what what I sort of think happens uh, happened is that these these functions, you know, the the idea of being able to calculate with precision the um, the the new moon in an eternal uh, calendar. You just have one stick, and then you can just live with it. And every year, you can just look at it and figure out when there's a new moon. Uh, that idea just. I think it hit Scandinavians really in a soft, soft spot, and they were like, "Yes!" So that meant that this exact way of, of reckoning, which is widely known in Europe, is only really got really big one place, and that was in Sweden, uh, and, and 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 a little bit east out of Sweden in Finland and and uh, places like that. And so, uh, so yeah, I think it. I think it. It, it sort of represents. Uh, it, it really made sense to them, and I also think that when we think about traditional culture, we have to think about tradition as something that moves, something that changes. Oh, of course. And, and uh, if if you have an Inuit hunter, you know, and you give him you give him a rifle, 
then he's not going to say, oh no, I'm going to stay Inuit, so I'm going to continue hunting narwhals with my bone spear here, because uh, that's what feels Inuit to me. And in the same way, when the metonic cycle came to Sweden, the Swedish peasants uh, took it in and used it, because it it, it was a really good tool for them to understand the way they they perceive the world. And and you find um, cases of I think astonishingly high level of capacity to reckon and 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 deal with with calendar. There, there's this weird tale. Um, no, I don't know. Let me just ask outside the. Um, do you want this tale? <laughs> Is it, Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe take a little. Of course. Part to, okay. Cool. There's there's this weird tale from. Um, um, no, it could also it could be if you wanted to ask something, you were sitting with something you wanted to. Oh no no um, no no! It comes from this um, uh, quite idiosyncratic and weird uh, early Swedish scholar called Olof Rudbeck. He went to the Disting Market, which in his day in the uh, late 16th century, uh, 17th century, was in uh, uh, was it was just a market. It wasn't a uh, religious celebration anymore, but it was still time by the moon. So he went there and he spoke to an, a really old man, uh, like 80 or 90 years. And he said, how do you know when to show up in this market here? And then the old man said, I'll tell you what, Olof Hulbeck, I'll explain it to you. <laughs> cool. First, we have in my family, and we've had this for three generations, a runic calendar. On this calendar, I can see when this full moon happens, when this these thing market uh, is taking place, and uh, this we've had uh, this uh, calendar since my grandfather had it. However, he said then, and then he came with this addition to this story that just blows my mind, dude. It, he said, but now this calendar has, and then he used a weird expression, it has run around with Auni. And that means that uh, uh, for for about 300 years, that calendar has been precise. But now, it's actually moved one space. So it'll be one day earlier from now on, or one day later, I don't remember. Uh, Now, the crazy thing about that is that that is astronomically precise description of a runic calendar that relates to the Julian, uh, the Julian year at that time. And how the flip did an old, you know, what do you call it, wheel-legged peasant, you know, who had never seen the inside of the school, know that to that level of precision, that over a period of 304 years, this moon reckoning gains one day in relation to the Julian calendar. <laughs> How did he know that? Was that just traditional knowledge that he also knew from his grandfather? And another thing is that the, the way he uh, describes this is interesting. He said it had run around with Auni. And King Aun is actually a mythic figure from the Inglinger saga, if I remember correctly, who whose lifespan uh, represents uh, the cycle with which the heathen festivals would be uh, held at Uppsala. So he uses, in the, in the uh, late 17th century, a heathen concept that he had, you know, 
zero chance of having read in books because these books weren't available at that time. So he uses the heathen concept to express an astronomically really precise detail about how reckoning functions. Uh, and that's a little bit, I mean, I know this sounds a little bit like some crazy program on, on some crazy history channel. Uh, and of course, there's always the odd chance that Olaf Ruthbeck made the whole thing up or something. But I just think it's a really interesting example of, uh, first, that, that uh, normal rural people uh, with very little level in schooling can have a very high level of interest and knowledge and competence in understanding uh, stuff like cycles of the world that they live and they navigate. If you That's go and you visit... Yeah. Right, if, you, if you visit indigenous peoples, right... And, and you go hunting with them, then you find amazing levels of of uh, knowing their environment. I once visited my uh, my partner; he's born in an indigenous uh, population in Central Africa, um, and these people they would say stuff like, "Okay, so tonight, one out of the sixteen uh, edible species of termites that we know is going to swarm, and on that night, and so they take." buckets and balls and everything that can contain termites and they go out and on that night termites just swarm out of the uh, earth in biblical proportion, uh, proportions right they and they know this because they have a very high level of, of uh, and I think this old man uh, this is a representation of that a similar kind of high level indigenous knowledge a high level traditional knowledge yeah yeah, Does that makes sense. Especially, absolutely, and especially if if you are living like your life outside in a way that most of us do not anymore, then you you are going to be in touch with it more. And if you're really old, then you'll see the changes. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. And, and so, and, I just wanted to ask. Um, um, so the whole cycle then of the. Uh, supposedly of the sacrifices happening at Uppsala every nine years. What was it that dictated it been every nine years? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, the, um, the myth in the Inglinger saga about King Aun says that he has, if I remember the myth correctly, that, that he was getting old, and he was, uh, he, but he didn't want to die. So he pleaded with the guards to let him live another year more by sacrificing one of his nine sons. So, according to the myth, he sacrificed a son every year, and then at the ninth year, it was his last son, and then the son, then he died. <laughs> um, so that's the myth uh, about it. And uh, according to Andreas Norberg, he, he argues very convincingly that these nine years are actually what we would call eight years uh, because of a kind of, it's called inclusive counting, <laughs> uh, which is that you start counting from, you start counting from one. So you go one, two, three, four, five, six, six, seven, eight, nine. So you have nine when we would count eight. Uh, he argues and he, he, he points that there's a, a number of cases in Nordic mythology where, where you had this I inclusive way of counting which was normal in the Middle Ages mm. um, but I, I'm not sure that this discussion is absolutely clo uh, closed 
the big question is when with these <laughs> when exactly would you want to start these uh, thing and i have i have a theory about that but it, but it's 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 too crazy and complicated for me to start talking about that now but uh, but uh, it might have been something about when the uh the first new moon uh, fell in a certain distance from the uh, from the solstice, winter solstice. Uh, that would mark that. Okay, so now this is one of the years where we had one of our octannual uh, gatherings. So um, I wanted to start them again, but um, uh, but first we have to figure out when it's supposed to be. You know, uh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not really f- through understanding that yet. <laughs> yeah, and the. Uh... The procedure of ritual might get a little bit complicated now as well. <laughs> yeah, the whole sacrificing of human beings uh, it would be a little bit troublesome, yeah. Well, uh, in this day and age, <laughs> if you want people to really to sacrifice something and for it to really mean what it meant then, then you can tell people to come along with a car and just sacri- and set the car on fire, <laughs> you yeah. know, with, with their credit cards inside <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, or their... Uh, or their um... The social media profiles or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I actually also think that when we talk about human sacrifice, it's important to... Uh, we, we, we tend to have a little bit of a Donald Duck idea of human sacrifice. It's something that uh, primitive distance pe- distant peoples do, and they probably throw, you know... Uh, pretty uh, 1960s uh, blondes with uh, torpedo boobies uh, into volcanoes uh, (laughs) and stuff like that you know however what is a human sacrifice really is a sacralized is a sacralization of violence and what is the sacralization of violence well that can actually be quite a lot of things if you have a normal christian uh um, what do you call it execution uh, throughout European history, there would have been elements of sacralizing that violence, even like identifying the person who was going to be executed with Christ, and he would have to repent and go through a, a ritual, a uh, mythic process of repentance, and so on and so forth. That's a human sacrifice, dude. And if you if, if you if you look at how uh, Christianity uh, implemented execution practices in Northern Europe, you'd find that that well. They often put uh, churches in close to gallows hills and uh, keep hanging uh, people outside the church. However, if you want a person who belonged to the warrior caste, then that person would be, be uh, granted a weapon death uh, by being perhaps uh, decapitated or something like that. It's very, very close to sort of this uh, Viking Age thinking of of uh, warriors who want to die by weapons as opposed to, I don't know if it, that was supposed, opposed to being uh, hanged as a, as, as a human sacrifice, but the, at least there are these two aspects that seem to be brought on. There's somebody who wrote about, I forgot the name right now, there's somebody who wrote about this whole thing about executions, how they, uh, how they mirror uh, pre-Christian human sacrifice. And like, I would say today, the way, for instance, that we talk in our public life about uh, loss of death st- still has aspects of sacralizing it. Uh, soldiers, for instance, when soldiers die in in uh, Iraq or Af- Afghanistan, like you can be opposed to those wars, but you damn sure you need to, you know, take a little bit of care if you 
when you talk about those soldiers who actually gave their life there, right? You know, even though you might be a hippie like me, you perhaps you're opposed to the war, uh, <laughs> you, you you probably aren't going to go and and uh, and, for instance, defame these so the, the those those soldiers, uh, and that is because their deaths have have been. Um, I don't know if the word in English would be eulogized. It's been spoken about in our media in ways that have been uh, giving it a certain meaning somehow. That is perhaps comparable to sacralizing. So, yeah, so this is just to say that, yeah, we don't hang people in trees anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But but perhaps we, we do other things in terms of violence and sacralizing it and stuff like that. Oh wow! Yeah, that's very interesting. So um, I heard um, I heard um, I think I got interrupted when I, I got halfway through your. I was listening to your video about the idea of the sun cross the other day, um, and uh, I, I know yeah. So you know that's the thing is for anyone that's interested in what you're saying, they can go over and find your work on YouTube, for instance. Um, and and where obviously you're going to elaborate on all of this in more more detail and so on. But uh, uh, just just for the sake of it, we'd, uh, since we're on this, and you've talked about the idea of you've talked about the the soul across in this context. Mm. Um, so do you think that the 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 you know as it's commonly known as the sun cross? Because you mentioned about that a lot of people possibly think of that as a symbol of the sun as opposed to its cycle. Um, how uh, do 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 you think that it had multiple meanings at the time to the people that viewed it, or do you think that that was the primary like, idea behind it? I I think it 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 could have very well had uh, multiple meanings first, uh, and the reason I think that is that some of the there are finds where, for instance, people are holding it as. You know, there, there are rock carvings where people seem to be holding that thing. Um, that, but I, again, that could mean a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily mean it represents the sun. It would just, it would just make sense if you know, holding a big round thing up in a ritual situation perhaps represents the sun. Um, however, I think the primary meaning of that symbol, the, the the circle with the cross inside is that it's a cosmogram rather than a symbol directly of the sun, sun meaning that it's, a, it's more of a model of, of reality uh, and that the, the, the sun would actually be thought to, to travel the outer uh, the circle. Uh, and, and in that respect, it, I think it, it resembles very strongly what, uh, what specific peoples in Africa, how uh, specific peoples in Africa are using very similar symbols, where there are crosses inside circles, uh, and where the, the actual really important thing is the, is the cross. The two intersecting lines sort of represents inter- the perhaps most vital intersection between dimensions, between death and life, and between... Uh, a line of power that represents a shaman traveling between dimensions, or the tree that connects the above and the below, uh, and yeah, that's and why that, you have in your your uh, symbol is this. Uh, it is the sun cross with the tree incorporated into it. Yeah. Is that idea of yeah. Yeah, there I'm 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 sort of 
explicitating that that aspect of it in in the kind of yeah symbol I use to represent the idea of Nordic animism. Um, uh, was there anything specific you you wanted me to talk about in relation to that? No, no, just just more than anything about the the fact that that's the meaning behind your use of the symbol. Yeah. Yes, but, and I think that the idea of the um, the tree as as the central symbol of life uh, is really, really, I think, important in Northern European tra- tradition in many ways, in a number of ways. You have these ideas. First, you have ideas of sacred trees. Um, you have it a lot in Scandinavia, but I, again, I don't know so much the British Isles, but I bet there's similar things in the British British Isles, like a sacred tree inside the village or a uh, important tree outside a farm where you have to go and give beer sometimes. And um, uh, and there is still some things like that. Uh, some some traditions. Uh, I mean, yes. I don't know how. Uh, I don't know of any certified uh, traditions in Wales as such, other than, you know. There's some some really really old yew trees in some of the graveyards around here. I think possible, yeah, uh, three to five thousand years old. Uh, some of them or so, they think. Whoa, yeah. that's uh, so. Yeah, <laughs> at least three thousand years old. Uh, yeah. One of them in particular, I think, was uh, that you know the seed was put inside a burial mound of a chieftain, and that it came out of that. That's what I've read about one that's in uh, mid Wales. Okay. Wow. Um, but but on the subject of uh, traditions that happen, I know uh, I saw my friend uh, Cri- uh, Clive Lang, uh, lovely guy who I tattoo. He he um, he posted on his Instagram a one where I think they were pouring cider at the roots of a tree, and that's it. It was it was a uh, it was really lovely to see because it, it wasn't one of these sort of traditions where uh, you know where it's getting. There's almost a lot of like uh, acting with robes or anything. It was just yeah. a load of people going having fun and just pouring a little bit of cider over it and making a you know having a yeah. bit of a, a party around it. Um, but uh, it certainly happens, of course. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I would, without knowing it, I would have expected that something like that would probably be be the case in in the British British Isles because it's such a such a pervasive image the idea of the tree of course there is the image of the Yggdrasil that we all know as sort of this connecting system that bin, binds all life together um, but there's also uh, uh, ideas of humans being created out of trees there are the idea there is the idea of runes perhaps being sort of trees uh, like in the anglo-saxon um in the Anglo-Saxon rune poem, it seems a little bit that the rune names is being more like trees than in the Nordic versions. There are these like ash and thorn and oak all of a sudden. Uh, and there are um, uh, there's this, also the idea of staffs, the idea of using specific staffs. Uh, so there's... And I think, and this is not something I studied specifically, but there's something about uh, idols, creating idols as staffs that are being cut. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the tree 
uh, as a kind of meeting point or relational point between humanity and other than humans is a really important uh, symbol. And yeah, or oh, by the way, also if you go east, there is this Mahdi people that live, they live inside, I think it's inside Russia, uh, who are the finno ugri speaking group. Uh, and they are still practicing pagan uh, religion. They some some people call them the last pagans of Europe, uh, and they have uh, they're, they're super focused on trees. They meet in groves and they put sacrifices at trees and stuff like that. It's a really important part of their religion. Um, so uh, yeah, trees. <laughs> yeah, and and again, like you know, there's a the whole thing we've been talking about about the idea of being able to mark out the year by by these uh, rune sticks and so on and by the lunar cycles but also trees trees are you know they're speaking a language that we can understand if we pay attention to them as well mm -hmm. of of how good or how bad the year is going by by their actions as well as uh, as well as the birds and so on yeah and flowers and you know all that yeah. again go <laughs> i yeah. feel like i sound very hippie when i say it but it's true yeah no no, no uh, totally and and there are ways of uh, the, the ways of, of, of communication that that uh, uh, scholarship is uh, is discovering now that really sound like if you describe it like this on a podcast like yours here it's going to sound really hippie but it is perhaps it is well perhaps <laughs> we should just be more hippie uh, like like that there, <laughs> that there are specific fungi right that 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 are penetrating parts of the forest and that they facilitate sort of hormonal communication between trees. So one tree will register if another tree is having a, a, a problem. Now, if that tree is a child of itself, it comes from its own acorn or not, then it will uh, perhaps channel nutrients to that tree as it's like communicated I mean, I mean, I don't know the details of this. I've been studying the science of this. I only have it, you know, from chit chats with with people. But that kind of stuff—it sounds like flipping Avatar, right? <laughs> you know, exactly. And, yeah. Uh, um, I I read a book about it uh, called um, "The Hidden Life of Trees," and I've I've always loved trees as it is because I'm interested in most things. But that thing blew my mind, and it was talking about the I can't remember the name of the the microfungal connections and all of that. The um, I can't remember the name of it, but the the new uh, Star Trek, the idea of their uh, time travel space continuum and all that, is based on this these new findings that we're talking about here. Uh -huh. Wow. Okay. Is that the one that's just on Netflix right now? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. They, they oh, based, shit, I'm gonna watch that. They based all of their fungal thing on the, on these uh, ideas as well. Yeah. And um, no, it's absolutely fascinating. But yeah, so so for anyone that hasn't heard about the hidden life of trees is amazing, and just just for fun, I'm going to say on that point that I that I thought oh, I've got to look into other books like this. So I I downloaded uh, um, the hidden life of owls to listen to, and I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who it is that's reading that one out, but it certainly wasn't as uh, it wasn't as poetic in its deliverance. Okay. <laughs> so me and Brock were in the studio trying to tattoo it to it and. <laughs> like they just come out with things like, I find the most alluring and sexual part of the owl to be the eyes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> it had some okay. really wonderful stuff in it, but it was just a little bit far out for me. 
Oh, that must actually be lovely, tattooing while listening to uh, to uh, MP3s, uh, books yeah. or something like that. We try to mix it up a little bit. It depends on uh, on who we're working with and uh, yeah. how interested they are in hearing about trees and owls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I recommend a book by uh, an, an Aborigine, uh, Aboriginal uh, scholar called Tyson Junkerporter. Uh, that uh, came out recently. I, I've been listening to that one on MP3, and man, that is some potent shit that guy's putting out. He's is is very uh, is very compelling, very compelling. And uh, look that up. Um, it's called Sand Talk. Um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So I know we're going a little bit off topic now yep. uh, from the Nordic stuff, but um, what what were you doing in Africa then? What uh, well, first times I went to Africa was I was actually working in a humanitarian uh, uh, humanitarian business on landmine information uh, stuff. So I was working in in Sudan uh, around the end of the civil war there. Uh, later in Angola, uh, also with with uh, it's called mine risk education. Uh, you have information programs that uh, tell people how to avoid the danger of landmine and on landmines and uh, unexploded ordinances. Um, right, because you you know you risk having kids running around playing around cluster bombs uh, that just need a little bit of static electricity to basically blow blow up like a hand grenade. So sometimes people need to to have these programs. Uh, so that was that was the first couple of times I was in Africa. And then, but then I've also been yeah a, a couple of minor sort of uh, stuff uh, concerning my my study uh, in in Ghana and in uh, in Uganda, um, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I you, you know you just uh, I was just interested in when you mentioned it before, so. Yeah. Um, oh no. Well, ah, yeah, yeah. The last thing there that was that was <laughs> that was more of a family <laughs> family visit uh, because my my partner she comes from uh, actually Central African Republic, and uh, so these are people they they're still hunting with spears. It's 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 like that is really going to the countryside um, to to visit them. Uh, so it was, it was that 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 particular thing was a long stay, but but it, it wasn't like living and working. It was just <laughs> visiting visiting the tribe. So yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Awesome. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, yeah, hope to see you around next time you come in to Copenhagen. Then we'll have a beer or two. <laughs> Absolutely. Once again, you can find uh, the Nordic Animism calendar on the Northern Fire website in the shop, and uh, as well as the book. So please head over and check it out. It's it's lovely work, and it's certainly worth having. Thank you.